the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WTBN Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. So it appears that this man was disciplined and, and this man was in such a state of remorse that Paul has to say, all right, once he repents, you got to forgive. In fact, you should forgive always, whether he repents or not. But forgiveness here is used in the sense of restoring him to the fellowship of the church. Don't let him just drown in his sorrow. He might be so overwhelmed that he'll turn away and be backslidden. And, and this is the time to, to love and reach out to him. Somebody used the expression the other day, the cure is worse than the disease. There are a lot of times when we can ignore the disease as if it is having no harmful effect on us. When we activate our efforts to combat the problem, all kinds of bad things seem to come to the surface. Most of the time, it's not really true that the cure is worse than a disease. It just seems like it when we are going through the effects of actively combating the problem we are facing. It works very much the same way in the spiritual world as it does in the physical realm. We can deny the obvious problem and go on about our business as if there is nothing really wrong. The moment we decide to confront the issue, painful things rise to the surface. We can even start longing for the days when we still naively believed that everything was okay. That's how we can accept superficial relationships and conflicts that never seem to go away. We think the cure is worse than a disease. God really wants us to go deeper. He wants to restore those broken relationships and to fix those personal problems that drag us down. As hard as it is to face the challenge of working through the problem or the cure, God wants us to stop living with the disease. Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is our teacher on Verse by Verse Radio. He's been taking us through a study called God Who Comforts the Depressed. We're really glad you're listening with us today. If you haven't been able to hear the messages up to this point, that's not a problem. You can go to our website, versebyverseradio, all one word, dot O-R-G, and either download the messages you have missed or listen to them right there. Right now, let's listen to Pastor Steve here on Verse by Verse. When somebody repents, you don't have to push them to get things right. I have to tell you that. You don't have to try to convince them to have restoration. They can't wait to do that. Whatever it takes is their attitude. Uh, you don't have to push them. You don't have to encourage them. You're, you don't have to say, now, you know you have to do this, painful as it might be. They, when God works in their hearts, there is an eagerness. Like Paul said, what earnestness you have towards us. They are zealous and eager, and they'll do whatever it takes to get things straightened out. So we need to be very careful we need to be sure that we're not naive about this and gullible when people say they repent. We want to make sure that they have proven their repentance by the fruits of repentance. In fact, that's why, as we saw the other week, John the Baptist told the hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees who came to be baptized, 
as a demonstration of their repentance. John said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't tell, don't come to these waters saying that you've repented. I want to see some fruit if you've really repented. Then remember Paul told King Agrippa about his gospel message. He said, what I tell people is they should repent and turn to God. And watch this, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So there always needs to be the outward demonstration of changed behavior and changed attitudes. That's why Paul was encouraged. Now, before we leave this, I want to just mention something and bring out something we have not said before. In Luke chapter 15, you don't need to turn there, but in Luke chapter 15, just something else that adds to this whole issue of repentance. Ordinarily, we think about repentance simply on, on how it restores our fellowship. It's, and that is the passage here. It's broken fellowship. We want there to be repentance. We want restored, renewed fellowship. But how does God feel about us when we repent? Jesus said in Luke 15, he said, there is joy in heaven in the presence of God when one sinner repents. That's Luke 15, verses 7 and then 10. So two times Jesus said that. Do you realize that when a sinner repents, and he's talking there, I believe, initially at salvation, there is actually joy in heaven. Imagine that. We can bring joy to the heart of God. God is thrilled when someone is saved. But I think it's it would be fair and reasonable to say that God is also thrilled when when Christians repent and get renewed fellowship. So it's not simply about us. Repentance also brings joy to the heart of God. Now, this brings us to our study. So far, Paul has revealed two principles, timeless truths about how God encourages believers who are depressed. He restores broken relationships, one. Number two, he produces repentance in sorrowful Christians. And the third principle that God uses to encourage depressed believers is this. He gives us a heart for the welfare of others before ourselves. He gives us a heart for the welfare of others before ourselves. That is to say that we have a love, a genuine love, to think about other people before thinking about ourselves. Let's begin to see this in verse 12. And I, and I want you to know before we go through this, this is worded in an awkward way. This is not the easiest, most, uh, uh, well, I should say easiest flowing uh, verses that you will ever read, but we'll try to explain it so that it's very understandable. It's not hard to grasp, it just is communicated in an awkward manner. Verse 12 says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Now, right off the bat, we notice Paul returns to the subject of his first letter. That's why he says, so although I wrote to you, he's referring to 1 Corinthians, and he tells them his purpose for writing 1 Corinthians, but he does it in such a way that you read it, and at first glance, it seems odd, it even seems confusing, and I'll try to take the confusion out. Notice how he begins verse 12, so although I wrote to you, which is 1 Corinthians, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended. Now, what does he mean by these words, and who, who is the offender, who is the one offended? I have to tell you that if you read commentaries on this, there are all kinds of speculations about who this might be. Who would be the person at Corinth who was guilty of offending someone and who might be the person who was offended by the offender? Well, some think, and this is a very popular view, that 
the, and this is one one view, I should say. Some think the offender was a false teacher, sort of the ringleader against Paul, that that was the man who was the offender. And then they would also say, those who hold to this, the one offended would be the Apostle Paul himself. Now, that is an interpretation. It's not one that, that I think holds a lot of weight, because I think it's uh, based on a lot of speculation. And certainly there were false teachers there, but that's not speculation. But I think this is speculative. The most natural, the most normal interpretation is to see the offender as as uh, the man Paul wrote about in his first letter. And after all, that's what he's referring to in his first letter in chapter five, who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. That, to me, would be the natural, most normal interpretation that this man who is having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother would be the the offender who might then be the one offended. I think his father would be the one who was offended, the man who was married to this unfaithful woman and this rotten son who was doing this. Uh, Paul, if you recall, had commanded the Corinthians in his first letter, chapter 5, to excommunicate the man, discipline him, put him out of the church. And apparently the church did that. Remember, as we think back to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, they were not going to do that. They were rather liberal-minded, steeped in Greek philosophy. They were very tolerant. They thought it was the loving thing to do. Why would we tell a man that he can't do something? And Paul wrote them very sternly and said, I'm telling you in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning that if Jesus were there in the flesh, this is what he would do. He'd put this man out. And he's not there in the flesh. I'm his representative. I'm not there, but I'm writing to you, and I'm telling you, put him out. You don't let this stuff go on. A little leaven, he said, leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin in the congregation, that stuff will spread. Deal with it. And that was a very strong rebuke to the Corinthians. And apparently, the church did this. The church did put the man out. And we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, as we put things together, that that this man had such a repentant, remorseful attitude that Paul was afraid that the man would be overwhelmed by his own sorrow. So he had to write in his second letter to the Corinthians to tell them, reaffirm your love to this guy. Forgive him and welcome him back to the good graces of the church. And let me show you this, chapter 2 of this letter, 2 Corinthians. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. And we're just trying to put this all together for you. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. It was painful for Paul to write about all of these things, especially this issue. This is the most difficult issue in a church when you have to discipline somebody. He said, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Paul wept over this church, especially because of this sin issue that required discipline. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. This man who had done this had brought great grief into the entire church. But watch this, verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So it appears that the majority of the church said, we have to do this. As painful as this is, we have to discipline this man. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So it appears that this man was disciplined and, and this man was in such a state of remorse 
that Paul has to say, all right, once he repents, you got to forgive. In fact, you should forgive always, whether he repents or not. But forgiveness here is used in the sense of restoring him to the fellowship of the church. Don't let him just, don't let him drown in his sorrow. He might be so overwhelmed that he'll, he'll uh, turn away and be backslidden. And, and this is the time to, to love and reach out to him. Verse 8, wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Don't shun him now. You shun a person until they repent. When they repent, then they're welcome back. And watch this. Watch this in verse 9. This is important. We're going to tie this together with chapter 7. For to this end also I wrote, meaning I wrote you. One of the reasons I wrote you is for this very reason, for this disciplinary issue, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Paul said, one reason, one purpose, one motive for me in writing you is to see whether you would obey me even in this issue. Because folks, when you find the church that's willing to discipline, you you have found an obedient church. There are many churches in our day that will not discipline sinning members of the church. They, They won't do it. They, they won't do it. The pastor will either deal with it privately or they won't address it at all. And, and Paul is saying that I have written to you to see if you'll obey me in everything, because I know if you obey me in this, you'll obey me in other things. Now, keep that in mind. Paul said in chapter 2, one of the reasons I wrote to you was because of this incestuous relationship that the man needed to be disciplined. And you may wonder, why wasn't the woman disciplined? Well, she probably wasn't a believer. That's why. You only discipline those who are believers in the church. But now, as you go back to chapter 7, it sounds like Paul is saying that his purpose in writing 1 Corinthians had nothing to do with the offense of this particular sin. Notice verse 12 again. So although I wrote you, he says, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended. So what is this? Is this a contradiction in the Bible? You know, it can't be. Not if God is the author of Scripture. No contradictions. Watch this. It is just a different way of communicating than we're used to. Bible scholars tell us that Paul is simply using a very common Jewish way of communicating that the disciplinary incident was not his primary concern in writing the Corinthians, though it was still a concern. Homer Kent of Grace Seminary, uh, formerly president there, I believe he's a professor there now, explains it this way. He said, here Paul used a common Hebrew manner of expression, choosing the chief reason for his action and stating it in a way that seems to deny other reasons. It's not denying it, but it appears like that. And let me give you a good example of this. You don't need to turn there. But Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says this, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now let me ask you, would God be saying that he doesn't desire sacrifice at all? God instituted the sacrificial system. How could God say, I don't desire sacrifice, when he instituted that? It's not that God didn't want sacrifices at all, but he was asserting that the greater importance was that of mercy. That's what he's saying. I desire mercy as uh, as the greatest thing to do as well as sacrifices. And that's that's exactly what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 7. He's not denying that this sinful incestuous situation at Corinth that he had it in mind when he wrote 1 Corinthians, but that wasn't the primary reason he wrote 1 Corinthians. That's, that's what he's saying. Then the question is, what was the primary reason? 
He tells us in verse 12. So although I wrote you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended. He's simply saying that wasn't the primary reason. Here's the primary reason. But that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. And in case you're looking at that and thinking, is that a mistranslation? Did some scribe get in there and change this? Did they misprint this? Shouldn't it say it some other way? No, that is, that is the way it is. And, and you know what? You read this and it just doesn't sound right. It, it, it sounds awkward, doesn't make sense. Let me tell you what Paul is saying. Paul is telling the Corinthians that the main reason I wrote to you is not that you would address this particular sin of incest. That was just one issue. But my primary motivation behind writing was that you might recognize how you really felt about me in God's sight. That's what he's saying. And notice Paul didn't say he wrote the Corinthians so that they would know how he felt about them, which you think that that sounds a whole lot better. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that I wrote you so you would know how you really felt about me. That's what he's saying. Now, let me explain. Your earnestness, he says, on our behalf, and earnestness is eagerness, zeal, on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. What Paul is saying is that he hoped that, that his letter would help the Corinthians realize their true devotion to Paul as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's why he wrote to them. In other words, Paul wanted his letter to remind the Corinthians of their true relationship to him. He was their father, spiritually, in the faith. They were his spiritual children. He wanted his letter to prove to the Corinthians that uh, he knew what was still there. He was convinced that this was still there, love and devotion to him. He wrote them so that they would see that they were still loyal and faithful to him. Deep down inside, they, they may have outwardly, they may have been rebelling, but deep down inside, they really loved him. They wanted to honor him. They really, they really were devoted to him, though they had some shaky bumps along the road. Now, I realize that this is a very awkward way of putting it in our English language, but let me try to explain as simply as I can what the, the heart of what he's saying. Paul was a grieving pastor to a sinning church. And he wrote this letter in order to snap the Corinthians out of their, their sins in hopes that, that this letter would help them to see how much they really loved him, how much they really needed to obey him. And, and he didn't do this in a selfish, vainglory way. I really need this to stroke my ego. Because notice he says, in the sight of God. Meaning that this is out of obedience to God. As God sees you, I know that you really love me. Deep in your heart, I know you're devoted to me. I just want you to know that. I want you to be aware of that. And you know what? The Corinthians did become aware of it. They repented. That's the whole point. They actually, this letter accomplished what Paul wanted it to accomplish. They repented and they recognized that Paul was their apostle. And they did love him. And that's why they mourned for him. And they longed for him. And they wanted to have fellowship with them, uh, with him. And that's why Paul says he was so comforted by this. Verse 13 for this reason, we have been comforted. What reason? The, the, the response of their repentance, that they recognize, what, what are we doing here? Why would we rebel against Paul? We love this man. We are devoted to him. We're loyal to him. And Paul said that that's why I wrote to you. And now I've come out of depression. I've come out of depression as a result of this. Now, how does this apply to us, this kind of awkward way of putting it? The broad principle, the general principle, what Paul is saying is that he, what he wanted 
what was best for the Corinthians. Did you get that? What Paul wanted, and the reason he wrote the Corinthians, because he wanted what was best for them. And what was best for them? To realize that deep down inside they really loved him and they were loyal to him as the vehicle of God's revelation to them. That's what was best. It wasn't that Paul had to have a whole church love him personally. It had nothing to do with uh, personal uh, interests. It had everything to do with what was best for the Corinthians. Now, let me tell you how this principle applies to our lives and how it will relate to bringing us out of depression. Most of the time, when we go through a conflict with someone else, our primary concern is ourselves. That's it. We want them to come around to our way of thinking. Remember the old Beatles song, try to see it my way, and we'll work it out. If we see it your way, we might be here a long time. And that's the way we are. We want them to come around to our way of thinking because we think we're right, and that's all there is to it. That's it. Why do we need to say any more? We tend to think about how right we are and how wrong they are. But you know what? Paul was a godly man, and I am appreciating more and more the depth of Paul's godliness as I study this letter, and I hope you're appreciating that. Paul had a different perspective. His motive in wanting the Corinthians to properly respond to him was not his pride in winning an argument. That's usually where we're at. We, we dig our heels in, and they're going to come around to us, or else we're not going to resolve this. Paul wasn't like that at all. He didn't care about winning an argument. It was because he loved them so much that he wanted what was best for them spiritually to realize in this context their true relationship to him before God. That's what he wanted. You see, and here's a key truth to bring us out of being down, to lift you out of depression. It's this. Are you ready? Stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. People who are depressed, and I say this without reservation, I thought as I was saying this in the early service, should I tone this down a little bit? Should I be as dogmatic? No, I'm going to be dogmatic. People who are depressed are always consumed with themselves. Always. Always consumed with themselves. That's all they think about. Their needs, their desires, their feelings, their rights. In fact, there's an excellent example of this in Scripture of a well-known man. Remember the prophet Elijah. Elijah was the first of the great prophets who confronted Israel, and he lived in a day and age in which there was national apostasy. The, the nation as a, as a whole, as a majority, turned against the Lord and went after the uh, false god uh, called Baal. And that was the days of Ahab and his wicked pagan wife Jezebel. And in 1 Kings, we're told about this, and Elijah was a bold man, a bold, courageous man who confronted the hundreds of of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He stood up to uh, Ahab, but there was one person he had a hard time standing up to, and that was Ahab's wife, Jezebel, the fury of a woman. And Jezebel said after she learned that all of her prophets had, had died at the hands of Elijah, she said, and I'm paraphrasing, when I get my hands on that little twerp, he's dead. And Elijah, you think the courageous man that he is, he fled. He ran from the wrath of a woman. And Elijah is in a state of depression. He's in a state of depression. You can read about him in 1 Kings 19. But we know this because he's only thinking about himself. And he begins to have a pity party. And he says such things to the Lord as this, I am the only one left, Lord. 
I'm the only one zealous for the Lord God of Israel. And God said to him, Elijah, you're 7,000 people off. You're so far off. You don't know what you're talking about. I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. Forgiveness is tough, isn't it? We can get really selfish and act like we have been offended so much that we can never get over it. We have all seen relatives of someone who has been murdered say to the murderer, I forgive you. Maybe we're thinking, yeah, right, but it can really happen. God wants us to forgive just like Christ forgave us. When we give up our hurt and our self-pity, God takes over and his healing starts to happen. We're not just talking theory here. This is real life. And that's why the Word of God is so amazing. It talks about real people facing real problems and finding real solutions through a very real and loving and powerful God. Thanks for being a part of our broadcast today. We're all about helping you in any way we can. Call us at 727-239-0306. We'd love to hear from you. We can answer your questions or just pray with you. There are a number of resources on our website, versebyverseradio.org. You can sign up for our quarterly newsletter and download messages for free. We're also looking for financial partners who will help us to get the message out. We are so glad you've joined us today. For Pastor Steve and all the staff, this is Jerry Pruden saying, see you next time on Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's verse by W262CP. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.